0: This is C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the Salem Witch Trials and the Great Awakening in the Americas. Baylor University professor Thomas Kidd explains how the Salem Witch Trials and the decline of Puritanism led to an era of traveling preachers and an emphasis on evangelism. We've been talking about the founding of the American colonies, uh, and we're getting now into the into the 1700s. Today and this week I want to focus mostly on uh, religion in uh, the late colonial period and uh, the coming of the Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s. And I know this has been on you all's minds since you have a paper coming up about that. So we're going to give some of the background to religion in in the colonial period and then uh, the lead up to the Great Awakening, some of the overview of what happens in the Great Awakening uh, and then hopefully that'll that'll set you up better for uh, your your papers. You can see here on the on the screen we have an image of George Whitfield, uh, who is the most famous preacher of the Great Awakening, uh, preaching in London uh, there in the 1730s, 1740s. Uh, he is the sensation of the age, but we'll we'll talk more about him when we get there. First, I want I want to take a look at the, the background to what's happening in, in 18th century America with regard to uh, religion. And we've talked about some of this already before in, in class about the scope of, of religion and religious commitment across the colonies. Um, if you look first at the, at the southern colonies from uh, Maryland down to Georgia, mostly what we have is a formal commitment to the Church of England um, and the, the, the Church of England, of course, is, is the national official church of England, of, of Britain. Um, and most of those colonies adopt a, what we would call a kind of formal establishment of the Church of England. Um, but the southern colonies overall are probably the least religious of all the colonial regions, which if you think about that for a second, you'll, you'll see why that's a little weird because we think of the South today as the Bible Belt, correctly. But in the colonial period, it's different. Um, In the colonial period, there is a a, a kind of formal establishment, at at least, of the Church of England. But once you get out past the colonial cities, places like Williamsburg and Charleston and Savannah, the rates of church-going and commitment to the Church of England is, is pretty limited and part of the reason for that is you remember going back to the founding of Jamestown in 1607, these colonies are mostly being founded for business purposes and it's a little difficult to set up churches um, in the backcountry where settlement is so scattered and so people living in the rural south um, in the early 1700s, I mean they might have been Christians for sure, I'm sure most of them would have considered themselves to be Christians, Um, If they were literate, they probably read the Bible. Uh, Maybe they had family devotions. But um, many, many of them did not go to church because maybe the nearest church is 50 miles away. And if that's the case, if you're going on a wagon, you're not going to go to church, right? So uh, the South, and people in the North, in the Northern colonies recognized this. This isn't just looking back as a historian. People in New England would talk about they're worried for the South and its relative godlessness. Um, that there just weren't that many people going to church there, and there weren't enough churches, weren't enough pastors, and so the South was really regarded as as the least religious part of the colonies. The Middle Colonies, and here we're talking about New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Delaware, is a, a real mix of. Different kinds of Christian denominations. Um, You have, and they're often connected to a particular um, ethnicity. So you have Scottish Presbyterians or Scots Irish Presbyterians. Um, You have Dutch Reformed people. This is the group who founded New Netherlands in the 1620s, the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, German Lutherans. Um, There are Quakers, of course, we've seen that. There's different Baptist groups in the Middle Colonies. Um, And so the Middle Colonies, I think, is representative of the kind of diversity that you see in modern America, that there's just a lot of different kinds of religious groups, a lot of kinds of ethnicities. Um, Sometimes they don't get along with each other. They're competing for adherents. But it's kind of hard to tell the one single linear story of the south and slavery new England and puritanism the middle colonies is just more like like that Um, and in New England when you get into the early 1700s and when when you're talking about the 18th century we mean the 1700s New England sees the decline of puritanism and remember they they had been founded Massachusetts Connecticut especially these kind of colonies are founded as puritan colonies and Puritanism by the early 1700s is in decline. We're now 70, 80 years past the, the time of the founding, and the the Puritan movement has started to fade away. Some now historians debate about just how much Puritanism is really declining. Um, some of this may just be talk, um, because you know that that uh, pastors, especially, but lots of Christians, will talk about oh, you know, our founders were much more committed than we are. I don't know if you've ever heard that in a church service or something. But, you know, it used to be so much better, but now we've fallen away. I mean, that's a very common rhetorical move that you get in churches. And you started to see that in the New England churches, too, in the late 1600s, the early 1700s. And it even breeds a type of sermon, uh, a characteristic kind of New England sermon that you get in this period that historians call the Jeremiads. The Jeremiads. Now, if, if you know your Bible well enough, you, you'll hear a name in, in that. That's from Jeremiah, um, who was a very gloomy kind of prophet. Um, and th- he was a sort of prophet that said to Israel, uh, you've fallen away from God. You need to straighten up or else judgment is coming and that kind of sermon became very common in new england too, starting in the say sixteen seventies sixteen eighties early seventeen hundreds the pastors would say you've fallen away from your first love you've fallen away from that original mission of the founding puritan generation of the sixteen thirties and you need to turn around turn back to god and renew your devotion to the lord Now how reflective this is of actual reality on the ground. I mean, had the people really turned away from God, it's sort of hard to know how to measure that. Um, It's hard, obviously, to judge people's hearts. But there is some evidence that at least New England is becoming more diverse, not just exclusively Puritan. You may, may remember that we talked about it, that in the 1690s, England started requiring uh, Massachusetts to tolerate other kinds of Protestants. And you, you, not just Puritans, but now you have to tolerate Quakers and Baptists and other kinds of Protestant groups. Um, there are some intriguing uh, pieces of evidence about rising, um, at least access to sort of immorality and so forth. In, six, in the 1680s, it looks like the Boston probably gets its first a brothel, um, you know, the characteristic of colonial cities in London and so forth at the time. Um, but you know, Puritan Boston gets a brothel, you know, a house of prostitution. Um, this is horrifying to a lot of people. There occasionally are dancing classes being offered in Boston in this era. So you know, I mean, there, and the Puritans were not keen on 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 dancing, um, especially between unmarried couples. Uh, it, it, you know, so there's, there are actually some pieces of evidence that you could look at and say, well, maybe this is becoming a sort of more diverse, non-Puritan kind of society. And so, you know, maybe there is something there to that Jeremiah kind of, kind of theme. Probably the most horrific uh, episode for the pastors in New England in, in the uh, late 1600s for sure is the Salem witchcraft crisis. Um, and we, we read a, a document on this for today, if you want to pull your book out and, and, and look at that. Um, the Salem witchcraft crisis is, uh, is horrific for the leaders in, in New England, first and foremost for them, because they see it as a great attack of Satan on their society. Um, the, the Puritans believed that they had this very high calling from God, and so they thought, well of course what would you expect that satan is going to break out in these attacks against us and that's how they saw what happened in sixteen ninety two is that satan had raised up a cohort of witches to to come in and and attack their people and try to disrupt uh, new england society and so that's how they first and foremost interpreted what was going on in salem and so Dozens of people start being accused of being witches. It, probably, if you if you remember some of the story, even from maybe reading something like *The Crucible* by Arthur Miller, um, the, there was a group of mostly teenage girls who probably had gotten involved in in at least some kind of white magic type of type of practice, um, trying to tell the future and so forth. And and then those those girls started to have uh, signs of of what the puritans would have considered to be sort of demonic attacks demonic oppression um, and having convulsions and 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 being tormented and they would say uh that it was this woman that woman who were, who was coming in especially in in the spirit realm to attack them spiritually and to to physically harm them um, and so ultimately uh, now by the way it's it's mostly uh... younger women accusing older women of being witches so um, it, almost all the accused are women but almost all the accusers are women too and so one one interesting um, historical investigation that some historians have engaged in is what was this a kind of you know what you would call misogynistic episode where a woman hating kind of you know gender episode of of uh... you know loathing of of women especially these kind of older women who were, you know, difficult to deal with, maybe had gotten into altercations with their neighbors and so forth. Um, And that's an interesting thesis, but but one kind of problem with it is it's it's almost always uh, women, too, who are accusing. It would be a little more convenient if it was men accusing women to read it as a misogynistic uh, episode. But um, there are some men who get accused of of being uh, warlocks, uh, and um, it, it ends up being uh, hundreds of people who get accused across the region. It's not just in Salem, but, but ultimately some very elite people start getting accused. And I think not coincidentally, that's when uh, the judges and other officials start thinking about closing the thing down because they can, they can see that the accusations have started to get, just go completely viral, haywire. And they said, wait, wait a minute, there's, there's, it's too many people. Uh, and they start to doubt some uh, some aspects of the trials. Now, uh, everyone in Salem in, in New England, I think approaching one hundred percent of everybody believes that witches exist. So even the critics of the trials um, are are saying, "Well now we know that witches exist, but there are problems that we have with the way that the trials are being run, okay? And, and we'll talk about why in a minute. But that's, that's a really important aspect to understand. Is this is not um, you, you know, the Puritans who in their religious fervor uh, believe in the existence of witches and then standing outside of that, you, know, you have these skeptics who say, you fools, don't you realize? No, everybody realizes or believes at the time that the supernatural is real and that it, at least in isolated cases that people can make a covenant with the devil in order to have malevolent spiritual power and so to be able to cast spells on people and maybe to torment them in, in the spirit realm at least. Okay, so let's t- let's take a look at this document and I'll get you to give me some comments a- about this. Um, on On page 43 in your book, you see we have... Uh, Tichiba, who they call an Indian woman, now it, it, it's debatable exactly who Tichaba was, but she seems to have been uh, maybe an indentured servant or a slave in the household of one of the pastors who's involved. And when they say Indian, um, we think that it might, might mean Native American, partly Native American, but it's more likely that she's probably from the Caribbean. Okay, so you remember when Columbus, he came, he says that this is the Indies. So um, sometimes when they said an Indian, that meant somebody from the Caribbean. Um, and so we don't, we don't know a whole lot about Tichaba other than these testimonies. Um, but she's being interrogated, and, uh, and they start off on page 44, and they say, the judge says to her, Tichaba what evil spirit have you familiarity with? And she says, "None. why do you hurt these children? I do not hurt them. Who is it then? The devil for all ought I know, and so on and so forth like that. Now, when you lead in like that in this trial, what does that tell you about the way that judicial proceedings went in the 1600s? Wanna bring the mic over? What does that tell you? Uh, it's very face value. There's no, like, evidence to back it up. It's just straight up asking and seeing if it happened. And Yeah, I mean, it's very matter-of-fact, including yeah. about the spiritual dynamic, yes. too. I mean, they're very willing to take testimony about what the devil is doing. What else does it tell you about judicial proceedings in the 1600s? Um... At least in this case that there isn't much of an innocence until proven guilty, That's that right. uh, they're just, assu- they, they believe that she is guilty, but they don't necessarily have the evidence to back the claim, so, but they do believe she is guilty without a doubt. Yes, so there's no presumption of innocence, and that, and that is not unusual in the 1600s. I mean, in the English legal system, at this time, there's no guarantee that you're going to be assumed to be innocent. For sure, and so the way they interrogate these people is, if you've been accused, you're assumed to be guilty. And so what they're really trying to do is to get her to admit that she's guilty. And you may have picked it up that she initially says, as we saw here, I didn't hurt them, but it's not too long into the interrogations that she goes ahead and admits that she is a witch. Now, whether she is doing this because... She wants to be let off because it it becomes clear that the people who won't admit that they're witches are the most likely to get executed. So you're in a kind of catch-22 here about, well, should I go ahead and admit it, even if you don't actually believe that you're a witch? But it could be that in some of these cases, maybe in Tituba's case, Some of these people may have actually been engaged in what they thought of as at least magical practices. Um, and And there may be a few of them who actually did regard themselves as witches. So that makes it a real conundrum about how to run these things. I mean, because if you have people who consider themselves to be witches, you know, in a society where everybody believes in witches, then that becomes a law enforcement matter, doesn't it? Do you see what I mean? I mean, it, it's, it's tough for us to know, you know, in our kind of secular age, how do, how do you deal with these kind of, kind of issues, okay? Um, and so if you look on further, uh, they say, well, what's this appearance you see? And she says, sometimes it's like a hog and sometimes it's like a great dog. Well, what did this, you, you know, animal being uh, say to you, they, they say, and she says, the black dog said, serve me. Okay? But I said, I am afraid. And he said, if I did not, he would do worse to me. Okay, now, who's the black dog? Who do you think the black dog is? Is it supposed to be Satan? I think so. I think, I, you know, maybe a demon, but, but probably the devil who's taken on this kind of animal uh, specter. Now, when she's testifying about this, and lots of people testified along these lines either this animal spirit attacked me, talked to me, or at the bottom of the page, um, she's talking about what else have you seen? Two rats, a red rat and a black rat. And then, do you see who it is that torments these children now? Yes, it's goody good, good wife good. Uh, she hurts them in her own shape. So she's come to them in the spirit, and she's tormenting them in the spirit realm, but it can have physical consequences. So what do you think is going on here when Tichaba testifies to seeing these things um, you know, sort of in the spirit realm? I mean, like, what, what do you think, does she believe this? What do, you, what do you think? I mean, this, this is speculative on our principle. So there's no wrong answer, but did you, did you have something? I, I don't think she actually believes in what they believe in. I think she's just manip, manipulating them because she doesn't really want to be a slave anymore. Okay. So maybe telling them what she thinks they want to hear. Yeah. Okay. And, and also, I mean, it's bad news if you're goody good yeah. to get accused like this. So, you know, maybe there are people that they're trying to settle scores with. Um, do you think that, uh, most of these accusations are people who are thinking consciously, I'm going to lie about the accusations? And again, this this is, there's no right answer on this, so this is just speculative. Or do you think that there are people who are so deeply convinced that witchcraft and, I mean, this is a traditional Christian belief, at least in demons, right? I mean, like demons are in the Bible, and you, you know, I mean. So, remember their mentality—1600s, medieval mentality, in effect. So, do you think that there are people who really do believe in these kind of things, or is it just a big sham? What do you What do you think? Hold on, just okay. I think that there probably are some people who generally like do like believe in it but I think the people who are like are being accused of it at that point in time they probably don't go into it thinking like yeah I'm gonna lie about this but when they're put on the spot they probably just get so desperate that they don't wanna like get in trouble for something that didn't happen like that they didn't do they probably just end up pushing the blame on blame onto someone else yeah and I, I think we can verify that I mean I I think you're right and and there are cases where late in the trials some people start recanting their testimony And among the things that they say is, I was put under so much pressure. Um, And I think some of them would say, I even started kind of imagining that things were happening to me. But now that I think about it, I'm not sure I actually saw But but some people definitely say they were put under so much psychological duress that they just went ahead and admitted to things that, that they knew weren't really true. And there are even a couple cases where we know that people were physically tortured uh... which is they're also not supposed to be doing that in english law that you're not you're not supposed to extract confessions from people by torture but but a couple people were and so you know one of the things with torture is you say whatever you think the people want you to say but i think i think it's true i think i think that that there probably are some people and it's hard to know exactly what their mentality is you know but that they they think Something is happening to them spiritually like this. And of course, everybody involved um, pretty much believed that the devil was doing something in these trials, either making covenants with these witches or duping the people, deceiving the people who are making the accusations. The opponent said, how do you know that the devil isn't deceiving people and into believing that these attacks are real? So it's tough to interpret this. But in the end, um, 19 people uh, were executed for being witches. Um, most of them were uh, executed by hanging. Um, one poor man was uh, pressed to death with boulders uh, until he suffocated. They were, they were trying to get him to, and there's an instance of torture, they were trying to get him to admit that he was a witch, um, and he wouldn't. So, it's a tragic situation. Uh, A few dogs were executed under suspicion of being uh, witches' familiars, you know, because a witch has a little animal companion that goes along with the the witch and and, uh, does their bidding and so forth. So, there were a few dogs that got executed as part of it. But by the end, um, most people involved, even some of the judges, realize that taking testimony um, about a person's spirit, uh, their, their specter, as they would call it, that, that taking testimony about this person's specter coming to me and encouraging me to sign the devil's book, to their specter came to me and physically tormented to me, the, the judges, even some of the judges said, that's not enough to convict somebody of witchcraft. And, and so we, we need to take a step back from all, so they shut things down. But by that point, 19 people had died. Um, by far, the biggest outbreak of witchcraft in the colonial American period, most cases before and after this, uh, were just one person being accused. Um, and there were uh, witchcraft episodes after this, um, but they were kind of on their way out. By by this point, partly because of the embarrassment of Salem. Okay. So, um, Salem is is definitely uh, feeding into a broader sense in the late 1600s, early 1700s of religious crisis in the colonies, especially in New England. Um, And New England, again, is is kind of the easiest story to tell about the coming of the Great Awakening because there's such a linear colonial story in New England of the Puritan founding, the decline of Puritanism, a sense of building religious crisis in the early 1700s, and then in the 1730s and 40s, an outburst of new religious commitment um, as signaled in the Great Awakening. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about about the background to the Great Awakening is really tracing the story, most specifically, of colonial New England, which is the epicenter of the Great Awakening in America, um, but the other colonies are definitely affected by the, the Great Awakening. Okay, so why why do they have a sense of of religious crisis? Um, well, one reason uh, you see here is is a, a rise apparently in Greed, immorality, we've already talked about this, about uh, the signs that people were falling away from their Puritan commitment. Um, The pastors are talking all the time about how people are consumed with business affairs and are forgetting about their love for God. Um, They're worried that that society is becoming dominated by greed, business, um, and uh, the kinds of immorality that they see coming along with that. Um, another reason for the sense of religious crisis is the rise of what we call enlightenment thought and a, a related trend, which is the rise of rational theology, quote-unquote. Um, now, the the enlightenment a term I'm, I'm sure you've come across before in, in other classes is a controversial term among historians. Historians are, these days are not necessarily so keen on talking about the Enlightenment, as if it's just one thing, capital E, that works the same way everywhere. We know for sure that there are different kinds of Enlightenment, depending on whether you're in, say, France, or you're in Scotland, or you're in America. Um, Some parts of the Enlightenment are a lot more anti-Christian, and then Say in America, the the Enlightenment tends to be fairly friendly to Christianity. It's just that we'll have maybe a, a little bit of an updated version of Christianity, a little more modern version of Christianity. But most of the advocates of the Enlightenment would say, "Well, of course we're we're Christian. Christianity is the best religion of all, and it accords with rationality and modern learning." Uh, so they wouldn't have seen uh, a, a tension between those things. Um, one of the ways that this plays out is there, there's a growing tendency to explain things uh, naturally. Um, and, and for sure, um, when you compare the mentality of Americans from, say, 1692, when the Salem witchcraft trials happened, to, say, 1800 in the years after the American Revolution, something has definitely changed on a popular level. Now, there's still people who believe in strong supernaturalism, and even in things like witchcraft. But if you go from 1692 to 1700 to 1750 to 1800, there's a declining tendency to see things in exclusively supernatural terms. So, uh, say your cow dies unexpectedly. <laughs> your cow's fine one day, and the next day the cow is frothing at the mouth and keels over and dies. What do you think has happened Right In 1692, you might think, especially if you've had a recent argument with sort of a spooky neighbor, that a spell has been cast on your cow. And, and you don't, you know, it's just reflexive. I mean, that's the world you live in, is a world of wonders and magic and these kind of things. And, and so you might just think, maybe it's a malevolent you know, spiritual attack on me my, and my livestock. Um, In 1800, some people might still think that, but it's a lot more likely that people will think, oh, well, they just, they got a disease. These things happen. Uh, There's a medical reason for it. You may not still have a very good medical explanation for it, um, but you tend to think about it not in terms of spiritual powers, but just the natural world. These things happen. There's not really any explanation for it. Uh, it's not that, that God is getting us or a witch is getting us or something like that. It's just, my cow got sick and died. That's a very important mental change, though, isn't it? I mean, th- this is the, you, know, you see in that the beginnings of the modern secular world. Where even today, many you know, devout religious people, if something bad happens to them, they don't naturally think it's a spiritual attack on them. Some, some people might, but most people think, well, what can you do? Bad things happen. Okay? And in theology, um, there's a related tendency to say we still study theology, we still want to understand God as best we can, but anything we believe biblically about God must accord with rationality. Okay? And so you take something like the doctrine of predestination, which we've talked about with the Puritans, uh, where God... Um, elects only certain people to be saved and leaves everybody else to their own devices, which means judgment and damnation. Well, the rational theologians say, to my mind, that doesn't make sense. I don't think God would act like that. I think God would give people all the freedom to decide for themselves whether to believe or not. That accords with normal standards of rationality. But you can see what's happening, I'm sure some of you may agree with that, but, but you can see what you've done is there's a little step towards a kind of human-centered type of theology. Because God must be understandable. God must be accessible. God must live up to kind of our standards of rationality, and that starts to influence the way that you interpret the Bible. Okay? Now, that sort of theology... Uh, rational theology had become dominant at Harvard College um, by the early 1700s. Now, Harvard had been founded the first American college, founded f- almost exclusively for training Puritan pastors um, in the 1630s. And by the early 1700s, it uh, had become captured by st- still absolutely Christian theology, but this kind of rational non-predestinarians, in some ways non-Puritan type of theology. And so New Englanders start a new college as a more conservative alternative that will kind of go back more to sort of Puritan type of theology. And that college was Yale. (laughs) Yale is sort of the conservative Bible college, right? (laughs) In in the early 1700s so so that we can have an alternative to Harvard. Okay, almost all of the colonial American colleges, the Ivy League schools, most of them were founded in the colonial per- period, and they're almost all founded uh, as colleges for the training of pastors. And almost nobody else went to college. No women went to college. Almost no men went to college in those days. And if you were a man who went to college, it was almost always in the colonial period to become a pastor. Okay. So. Uh, what they saw is a rise in immorality, uh, enlightenment thought, more modern kind of philosophy and theology. And then a third reason for this sense of crisis is ongoing war with uh, Catholic France and Spain and their Native American allies. Starting in the 1690s, um, the colonies, but especially New England, go through a couple of generations of imperial war between... Britain and the British colonies and then either France or, or Spain and in New England the main issue is uh, fighting against the forces of France coming out of Canada or New France what they call what they called New France there's no natural boundary there if you think about it, you know England and France are fighting in the same time period too but the English Channel separates them and for the colonists in New England there's no natural barrier and so uh the French and they had more Native American allies than the British did and so you would have attacks from the French on frontier villages um, Native American raids on frontier villages sometimes even when Britain and France weren't technically at war you would have New England and New France fighting these kind of low low level but vicious wars with one another 1720s uh there's a war you know on the eve of the great awakening there's a war between new france and new england um, that's inspired by a, a french catholic missionary who's operating in in maine and they and and he's telling the indians stick up for your rights against the english don't let them take your land and they you know they have this war and the new englanders commission a bounty against this priest in maine this catholic priest who's you know encouraging the native americans and they send out a war party against him and they shoot him and kill him and they scalp him, the, the missionary, right? They scalp him and bring his scalp back to Boston, right? We t- we, you know, traditionally, we talk about the Native Americans are barbaric. Who's barbaric? You know, The English are commissioning scalp bounties against a Catholic missionary, right? I mean, th- it's just a vicious time all, all the way around. Um, so if you've got these kind of troubling intellectual changes, you've got social changes, uh, you've got war. War is, is, is such a contributing factor by the fear of the judgment of God. If we don't stick close to God, we may be overrun by the French, we may be overrun by Native Americans. And all these things are feeding into, say, on witchcraft trials, The memory of that horror, are feeding into uh, a sense of religious crisis through the colonies, I think, in general, but especially in New England. 1720s, 1730s, and then guess what? You get the Great Awakening. Now, I mean, most people, I think, feel like the time they live in is a time of, of crisis. But there's no doubt that uh, the colonists felt that crisis in the 1730s, and I think culturally, religiously, that set them up for a new religious awakening. Um, And the First Great Awakening, 1730s and 40s, is kind of the main event, although cascading effects of the revivals keep on going into the revolutionary period in the 1770s. Um, And it's it's hard to explain why did the Great Awakening happen exactly. you could look at social and cultural factors. Uh, you could look at the the history of the decline of Puritanism, and and for sure, I know some of you would look at uh, you know spiritual factors that, that you know still today you know people will say that there are spiritual divine reasons why uh, God made this happen. And, and in a history class, we don't spend much time on that that kind of thing. But there's no question that in the 1720s, 1730s. You find evidence of pastors across the colonies and in New England um, telling their people that they need to pray for revival, which is a term that's occasionally used in, in the Bible um, in the Psalms is that you revive us again. Um, and they, what they're talking about is that they want uh, for the people to be praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, third person of the Trinity. Uh, to be poured out so that people will come back to God, that lots of people will convert to Christianity for the first time, even though basically all these people are at least nominally Christian. So they'll have a conversion experience, and maybe people who had fallen away from God will return to God and return to their commitment to God. And so uh, in the Jeremiads, the message had been, you know, we need to straighten up and start living right and doing what we know God wants us to do. In the 1720s and 30s, they tweak the message just a little bit and they, and they say, we're so far gone that what we need is divine rescue. <laughs> right? We don't, it's not about morality anymore. What, what we need is a revival created by God through the Holy Spirit. We need that to change our society. And so I think we can reasonably uh, expect that if pastors are calling on people to pray like this, that some people were responding to the pastor's calls and praying for revival. And so in the 1730s and 40s, revival comes in a big way. And what you think about that, I think, has everything to do with what your you know, belief is about prayer. Does prayer do anything and, and this sort of thing? But a lot of Christians for sure would say, uh, you know, well, people prayed and God... Responded to their prayers and, and you know to a significant extent. It also could be if you were more skeptical, you would say, "Well, look, I mean, the more they talk about revival, the more likely it makes it that it's going to happen." And I, actually, I think those two explanations probably can can work together. So, what's different about the first Great Awakening? I mean, one is it just it's it's an outbreak of great religious intensity and fervor. Uh, individual passion, conversion, life changing events, and people's uh, autobiographies. Um, but another thing that's different is the role of the itinerant preachers in, in the Great Awakening. Um, before this point, um, the standard model for a pastor is, and this is most of the time in church history, is that you have a pastor who pastors his congregation and doesn't do much traveling around speaking. I mean, your your parish, your church, that's who you speak to. But in the First Great Awakening, you start to see um, a critical role for traveling preachers who cause a sensation everywhere that they go. And they're brilliant preachers. George Whitefield is number one on on the list. Uh, They're brilliant preachers who travel around And they become famous, at least regionally, if not internationally. Whitfield becomes famous internationally. Uh, Having a reputation of being this brilliant preacher, um, and you can't wait for them to get there, and it's new, it's exciting, and they have a laser focus, these itinerants do, on the message that you need to accept Christ's free offer of salvation and that you need to be born again, born again. And if you remember, Jesus talks about the born-again experience in the Gospel of John chapter 3. In order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. right? So this is they're not inventing this kind of experience out of nowhere. It's a long-time biblical message, but people in the past maybe have had different understandings of what born-again meant. People in the First Great Awakening are real clear. What you need is that, As, you know, an adult or at least, say, a a teenager, you need to understand for yourself that you're a sinner, that your sin has caused a serious problem between you and God. God is offering you forgiveness through Christ and what Christ has done on the cross, and that you need to personally accept that offer of forgiveness in order to be in right standing with God. And when you do that, usually in a time at least of kind of short spiritual crisis for you, when you do that, that is your moment of being born again. And that everybody needs to have this experience. Okay? So uh, the parish minister, parish pastor, you know, might be talking about a, a lot of different topics from week to week and preaching through the Bible and various topics, but the itinerants are really focused on you need to be born again. And they, they travel and tell people in these impassioned sermons that you need to be born again. That's the center of their message. Sometimes they don't talk about much else. Now, the greatest mind, the greatest theologian of the Great Awakening is Jonathan Edwards, who we have a picture of in the upper right-hand corner. Um, Edwards is best known for his sermon, "Centers in the Hands of an Angry God, 1741. Um, And Edwards is is a minister in Northampton, Massachusetts. He does a little bit of traveling, uh, itinerating. Most of the time he just sticks at his church like, like most average pastors do. But Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he actually gives um, in a nearby village in Connecticut um, while he's traveling around in the summer of 1741. So so Edwards is not the most famous pastor, preacher at the time, but Edwards has come down to us as the greatest intellectual figure of the First Great Awakening and arguably the greatest uh, intellect of the whole colonial American period. Now, I mean, we could do a whole class on just Jonathan Edwards because he wrote a ton, and it's very intellectually and theologically sophisticated and challenging. Um, but he's best known for this one sermon, "Sinners um, in the Hands of an Angry God," um, and the, it gets anthologized and, and and people read it today, and 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 it's. It's a good news, bad news kind of thing because it's an absolutely brilliant sermon. There's no question about that, and it's frightening if you've ever read it. I'm going to read an excerpt from it here in a a second. Um, But we should not mistake Edwards for some kind of just screaming, you know, crazy, you know, somebody you see on late night TV or something, you know, yelling about you're all going to hell and this this kind of thing. He is a a, a titanic intellect. The last job he had in his life was the president of the College of New Jersey at Princeton. So he was the president of Princeton College um, because he had that kind of intellectual reputation. And he also, when he preached, including sinners in the hands of an angry God, when he preached, he had a manuscript in front of him that he had handwritten out, um, and he read the manuscript. Now, I think he would try to give it some feeling. But the power of his sermons is in the content. It's not in the rhetorical fireworks, right? So when he gave Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in 1741, um, it got an intense reaction from the people who were there. And some of the people uh, at the meeting when he gave it started crying out uh, for mercy. I mean, what, what can I do to be saved? Right, I mean, they, they were terrified of the judgment of God and they'd, some of them falling out in the aisles and crying and this sort of thing. And when Edward saw what was happening and it was getting noisier and noisier in, in the meeting, uh, meeting room, he closed up his sermon and he said, I, I, I think we're okay. We don't need to get this crazy, <laughs> right? So he's not necessarily looking for you know this outlandish response, but he gets it because of the power of the rhetoric that he uses. And even secular uh, scholars of the colonial period of Edwards, people who don't believe in Christianity and so forth, they know that Edwards is intellectually brilliant and that his rhetoric is just stunning. And that's one of the reasons why people today still study Sinners in the hang- Hands of the Anger Angered God is because of the rhetoric of it. And especially if you've ever read it, you'll never forget the image of the spider hanging over the fire. Do you remember this? Have you read it in an anthology? He says, in this I'll just read a a, a couple paragraphs here. He says, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And then he says, The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, and yet, tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. So you see the contrast between God's judgment and God's grace. Both very intense. And he says, How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again. You see what I'm saying? So we lay out people's desperate case because of their sin. And you say, the rescue is available to you through being born again. That's the basic content of virtually every Great Awakening sermon. Laser focus. You need to be born again. Okay, and you can imagine people, I mean, he's ta- the, it's frightening, isn't it? I mean, the, the pit of hell, the, the insect over the fire, and what if he lets you go? What if he lets you go? Uh, and you can imagine people falling out. And they're as sure about this as we're sure about the sun coming up in the morning. I mean, the, the, This is absolutely no doubt this is true to them. They don't have any doubt, and they, they want to make sure they're right with God. So um, Edwards is, is the great defender of the Great Awakening. I mean, he, he gets stereotyped because of this sermon as a fire and brimstone preacher. Most of his sermons are not like this, I have to say. I mean, he preaches a lot more about the love of God than he does about the judgment of God. Um, I think his most representative sermon, if I had to recommend one sermon for people to read by Edwards, it's called Heaven is a World of Love. You find it on the Internet, right? I mean, And that's, I think, the core of Edwards. But if he's on the topic, he'll also preach about the judgment of God. And he can put it in terrifying terms. Okay, but he's incredible intellect. I mean, I, I I can't tell you uh, everything. I mean, Edwards is writing about definitely about predestination. He's writing about original sin. He's writing about enlightenment challenges to the traditional Christian faith and how. And so, he he becomes. He's definitely one of America's greatest theologians ever. Um, if you care about this sort of thing, you definitely got to read Edwards. He matches Enlightenment thought with traditional Christianity. He says, this is, we know this, say, from John Locke, um, but this is how this works with traditional Christianity. I mean, he, he's read everything. He's using it to, to show why, even in an Enlightened age, traditional Christianity still is the most compelling theological system. It's absolutely brilliant. But what he gets known for is this one sermon. Not saying it's a bad sermon, but there's a lot more to Edwards, okay? Edwards is not the most famous preacher at the time. Um, He's more famous today. Um, The most famous preacher at the time, for sure, is George Whitefield. Um, And I know the way it's spelled, it looks like it would be Whitefield, but I'm... On good authority, I'm told it was pronounced Whitfield. He is uh, by far the most famous preacher of the 1740s. And it's even more than that. He is the most famous person in Britain and America in his time. The only competitor that he has... Is King George. And maybe more people know King George's name, but a lot more people have seen Whitfield in person, have read Whitfield's stuff, his journals, his sermons. Um, we think that probably by the end of his career, he dies in 1770, that probably like three quarters of everybody that lived in America had heard him preach. He's a bigger celebrity in his time than anybody we have in our culture today. Because in our culture, we oh, we live in a celebrity-driven culture. You know that, right? But we're dispersed, right? Some people like Justin Bieber. Some people don't like Justin Bieber, right? I won't do a poll, but you know what I'm saying. Um, everybody knows Whitfield. Um, uh, everybody, even if you're a critic, I mean, you've had to sort of deal with Whitfield. He is arguably the first modern celebrity. I didn't say religious celebrity. I said first modern celebrity. Um, When he shows up in a town, He draws crowds often that are bigger than the population of the town itself. So he gives a farewell sermon in Boston in the early 1740s. Say 25,000 people show up when there's about 17,000 people living in Boston at the time. So effectively, the whole population of the town, plus people from the hinterlands. Uh, When he preaches in London... They say 60, 70, 80,000 people are coming to hear him. And you'll remember, this is pre-electricity. So he does not have what? <laughs> a microphone. And uh, if you've ever read Ben Franklin's autobiography, he and, he and Franklin were close, uh, business associates first and then, and then friends. Um, Franklin, when, he, when Whitfield first came to Philadelphia, Franklin did a little experiment You know, Franklin does experiments, right? And so he's walking around the edges of the crowd trying to figure out how many people can hear him speak at one time. And Franklin said, you know, I I think maybe twenty-five or 30,000 people could hear him speaking at one time. So that tells you that Whitfield, he had a background in the theater as a teenager. He was a play actor before his conversion. He knew how to project his voice. And I think he must have just been enormously loud. Okay, um, And he's, when he, a lot of the portraits we have of Whitfield are when it, he's old and, and kind of sick. Um, so I, I like portraits like this one um, when he's a young man, relatively young, um, They thought he was good looking. I, you know, you can tell for yourself what you think about that, but uh, um, young man, very dynamic, um, and unlike Edwards. Um, Whitfield's presentations were uh, without a manuscript. Um, he would pretty much memorize his sermons, and he had a repertoire of, you know, a selection of say ten or fifteen sermons that he would kind of rotate through, because all he did was itinerate. He d- he didn't have a congregation, and so he could really polish a short list of sermons. And he, he had them memorized. And he could, on the fly, he could see what people were reacting to. And he's moving around the stage. And he would, in effect, act out if he's talking about, say, the, the story of the prodigal son from the Gospels. He would put himself almost in the character of, say, the father waiting for the prodigal son to come back. And, you know, he, he would act as if, methinks, I see the father waiting for the lost son to come back. And he would, he would act it out, you know, and, and act out the part of the son there in the pig pen, eating the, the stuff that they threw out, only fit for the pigs to eat. He's acting these things. And sometimes he would even be, you know, weeping the way that an actor weeps. Not because not it's fake, but because he's into the, the story. It was very powerful. If if I could just have a YouTube clip, uh, I, I, you know, of anybody besides maybe Jesus, right? I mean, I I would love to have a YouTube clip of George Whitfield, because then you know you would just see what it was like. But people were just blown away when they would hear him speak. I love this picture. This might be my favorite painting of of Whitfield, um, and it's because of the woman. Um, not so much. I like it that it's young Whitfield, but I, I love the woman. In this, see, you know, she's like, I can't believe I'm in the front row of a Whitfield meeting, right? And she, she's, you know, she's smitten. I mean, we we think this may be a portrait of Whitfield's wife. Uh, he was married; but they weren't together very often because he was always on the road. Um, but you you can tell. I mean, she's she's smitten. I mean, th- this is. This is the first British sensation. I, I'm not, it's not trivializing it to say this is this is like the Beatles um, in, in a much later electronic age. But that's the kind of effect that Whitfield had on people. Obviously, a very different message. But this is this is revival for sure, but there's a celebrity sensation that it creates. So huge responses, huge crowds. Reports that he's coming, you know, months in advance. Got to get there early, right? And they would tell people, park your horses you know, at, the, at the margins of the crowd so that more people can get in. It's a mosh pit, right, being up up front. I mean, packed together, as close as you can get. If you were on the margins of the crowd, you want to be, you know, just off in the distance, you could hear him preach. But, hey, it's a Whitfield event. Uh, Britain, America, had never seen anything like this before. The reason why Whitfield is not more famous today, I mean, he's known, uh, and they're you know, kind of Christian devotees of, 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 of Whitfield, but is because his brilliance was encapsulated in the sermon as delivered. You had to be there to really get it. Um, I've written a book on Whitfield, and I have this sense that I still don't quite get it because I don't have my YouTube club, right? Um, where Edwards' brilliance is captured on the printed page, you didn't have to be there for Edwards because it, it, it's his ideas, and they, they're captured on the on the page. Okay. So the First Great Awakening is obviously this this renewal of religious fervor um, and to people who are not into this sort of thing, people who are not Christian, not not religious, not devout themselves, it, it may seem like, well, this is sort of this quaint thing that happened in the 1730s and 40s, worth knowing about, but maybe not that interesting to people on the outside. But I would say that... The Great Awakening is also significant because of the controversy, culturally, socially, that it creates. It is extraordinarily controversial and disruptive in colonial society. It is the biggest upheaval in the British colonies before the the American Revolution, happening 30 years before the American Revolution. It's the biggest social upheaval in the colonies before the American Revolution. So even from a secular perspective, this is a big deal. Um, Part of the reason for this is because during the Great Awakening, pastors are getting challenged like they never have before. Of course, in the 1730s, 1740s, being a pastor is a very socially respected office. And if you have a state church, an established religion, then the pastor is on the government payroll and he's a representative of the government as, as well as the church. And so if you attack the pastor, you're attacking a representative of the state. And that just never was done, at least not very often before the Great Awakening. But some of the itinerants, even Whitfield, from time to time, especially early on, would suggest incredibly controversial things about the official ministers, and he would say, You know, your pastor is not very supportive of the revivals, is he? He's uncomfortable with this new work of God that's broken out. Do you know why that might be? I think it's because your pastor himself may not actually be a converted Christian. <laughs> Now, that's a rude thing to say about a pastor, isn't it? I mean, you know, this this is... And the pastor does not like this. The pastor is extremely offended to have these touring itinerants come around, come into town, maybe even stand up in the pulpit of your church and say, I think your pastor may not even be converted and that's why he's not sufficiently supportive of the revivals. No one's ever spoken about pastors this way before. Extremely controversial. The radical pe- preachers, um, the ones who were just really inflammatory. Example is James Davenport, who you all will have read about. He's the most radical, controversial preacher in New England. He goes into churches early on and he starts naming names. I've got a list here of all the pastors in Boston who are not converted. They're going to hell. Can you imagine? I mean, especially in the colonial world, someone showing up and saying that sort of thing. They start passing laws against itinerants like this, telling them that they cannot go uninvited into a pastor's pulpit. They'll be arrested if they do. So this is becoming a legal, political controversy. Okay? Another reason it's controversial is because you start to see some common people, usually men, but even occasionally women, who believe that they should be able to preach without a formal education. The way this works is that they say, look, I know I'm converted. I know I'm born again. I know when it happened. It happened three months ago. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. My pastor is not supportive of the revivals. I'm not even sure he's a converted Christian. I should be able to preach. It doesn't matter whether I have gone to Harvard or Yale or Oxford or Cambridge. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and that you're supportive of the work of God. So farmers, you know, who don't go to college, for sure, uh, occasionally... Native Americans who were converted in the revivals. Occasionally, slaves start standing up in the meeting and saying, I have a word from God for you. And pastors like James Davenport will say, listen to this brother. Listen to this sister. She has something to say to us that's from the Lord. There are no social settings anywhere else in colonial America where you'll see women, slaves, Native Americans standing up and addressing in this even somewhat authoritative way white men. You just don't see it. It doesn't happen anywhere else but these kind of revival meetings. So you can understand the critics say this is ju- this is crazy, man. <laughs> Y'all are nuts. This is socially disruptive. Okay, moving out from beyond just the simple religious message, this is socially disruptive. And the critics say, this is just a bunch of frenzy. It's what they would call enthusiasm at the time. It's bad in the 1700s to be enthusiastic. That means you're half crazy. And that's what the critics said this was. It's just, enthu- it's just a bunch of hooey, but it doesn't really mean anything. And these people are just getting whipped up into emotion, but it's not actually doing anything for them spiritually. The critics say, you know, what we need is love, charity, devotion to your pastor. <laughs> All right. What difference does the Great Awakening make? Um, One of the most obvious differences is that the Great Awakening brings about a a sea change in which churches are the most popular and prominent. And this is a a change that continues on into the 1800s as part of the Second Great Awakening. In the colonial period, the most prominent churches are the Church of England, um, the Congregationalist Church, which is the Church of the Puritans, and some other denominations like that. Um, In the Great Awakening, you start to see the emergence of new denominations that are eventually going to become the largest Protestant churches in America. Um, especially, most notably, the Baptist churches, which have been around for a while, but they're pretty small, isolated. Um, They start to become more popular because of the Great Awakening and evangelistic. And one of the first places that the Baptists send missionaries coming out of the Great Awakening is, guess where? The South. So the Great Awakening starts to begin the process by which the South would become much more heavily Christian. And some of the most popular churches, of course, in the South are going to be the Baptists and then the Methodists. The Methodists are a movement first within the Church of England. Whitfield is a Methodist. You may know the name John Wesley, who becomes sort of the founding father of Methodism. He's almost always in Britain, but Wesley's missionaries and pastors start to become active in the First Great Awakening, and especially after the American Revolution, the Methodists go out on the frontier and establish eventually thousands of new churches so that by the time of the Civil War, the Methodists have gone from being non-existent at the beginning of the First Great Awakening To, by the time of the Civil War, they're the largest Protestant denomination in America. So, the Congregationalists, the Church of England, Anglican Church, what comes to be known as the Episcopal Church, they're kind of left behind in in terms of numbers. And the Baptists and Methodists come to the fore. Obviously, for Baylor, that is a significant. The Baptists get as far out as Central Texas by the 1840s and are establishing not only churches but a college, Baylor, okay? So that's pretty important to us. Um, the revivals, as you can see, begin in New England and the middle colonies, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, very heavily affected by the revivals, slowly spread into the southern colonies by the 1750s. Um, They're also happening in Britain and in continental Europe. The Great Awakening, I've talked exclusively about America today, but it is an international phenomenon. Okay? Um, It is a transatlantic event seen most obviously in the person of Whitfield who is from Britain, but he comes to America seven times. Okay? What's the importance of the Great Awakening? Um, Some historians have argued that it's an important prelude to the American Revolution. It's debatable, it's a debatable issue because of the way the argument goes is, well, if it's this big social upheaval, uh, and it's 30 years before the American Revolution, doesn't it have a kind of conditioning effect on American culture to get it ready for the American Revolution? And I'd say, yeah, I mean, probably in an indirect way, it does. But we also have to remember that Britain has its Great Awakening, too. And Britain, you know, is our opponent in the American Revolution. So it's not quite as simple as... I definitely wouldn't want to say that the Great Awakening somehow causes the American Revolution. But influences the culture? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And then, for sure, I mean, you're on more solid ground if you say... Well, the Great Awakening inaugurated um, this evangelical movement within Christianity, which remains in some kind of different forms. It's taken twists and turns, you know, Billy Graham and people like this in the 20th century, you know, different formats and so forth. But really, Whitfield is the beginning of this sort of evangelical movement within Christianity that especially when you look at it in global context— is enormously significant today um, and shows no sign of slowing down and in many parts of the world continues to be growing. And some of the leaders in places like sub-Saharan Africa and so forth the evangelical movement, guess what? They look to people like George Whitefield and Jonathan Edwards as examples. So I think there's a, a sort of continuity in the evangelical movement from at least the 1730s and 40s right on through today. So, for sure, that's a reason why the Great Awakening is significant, okay? All right, that's all I have for today. Thank you, and let me know if you have any questions about your paper, okay? Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History. Be sure to check out our Afterwards podcast. This week, our guest is author Robin D'Angelo, whose book, Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm, looks at how well-intentioned white people can inadvertently cause racial harm with the culture of niceness. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.